service. Dear Young Rocker is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Dear Young Rocker, you know how it feels absolutely impossible to talk to a person you don't know? I mean, well, besides someone who immediately appears younger and dorkier than yourself, that you can handle. But like, someone who you think of as cool? Well, you're probably never completely going to lose that fear, but the secret you'll learn is that you have to just do scary things while you're still terrified. It's actually impossible to somehow make yourself independently super confident first and then go do them. You have to just do the thing anyway. And as you get older, you'll see that life has a way of just throwing you into really scary things with no option to exit anyway. You'll get there, though. You'll start conversations completely unsure of yourself And you'll keep going, even when you feel like every word out of your mouth is embarrassing or TMI, and you'll want to kick yourself afterwards. But at some point, after the uncomfortable amount of adrenaline wears off and your self-flagellation slows down, you'll realize you've just leveled up, and you'll be happier in the end that you did it imperfectly rather than not doing it at all. This is all to say that even though you decided against a career in journalism in high school for this very fear, you're going to eventually find yourself in a job where you talk to cool strangers all the time. Very cool strangers. One of those cool strangers is another person who's also learned that you can get through the scary and heartbreaking things you'd never think you could by just taking one breath at a time. When she first started performing, she actually thought she didn't have any talent as a singer. She had no confidence in her voice. And yet now her band is pretty big. To use one of her song titles, they're Jimmy Fallon Big. Michelle's Honor has been releasing music under the name Japanese Breakfast since 2016. Her first album came out after the death of her Korean mother, who she had a complex relationship with as I believe all of us single daughters do. She has a new memoir out called Crying in H-Mart, which in large part is about her mother's death, as well as their incredible relationship and the cultural and culinary factors that were important to it. It also details her time writing that first album and her own teenage musical discovery and angst. And on the topic of teenage angst... Here's Michelle from the audiobook version of Crying in H-Mart. By the second semester of 11th grade, what could have passed up to that point for simple teenage angst had begun to escalate into a deeper depression. I had trouble sleeping and was tired all the time. I found it hard to muster the will to do much of anything. My grades had started falling, and my mother and I were constantly at odds. 
You get it from my side, and fortunately, my father told me one morning over breakfast. Bet you can't sleep either. He was sitting at the kitchen table, slurping a bowl of cereal and reading the newspaper. I was 16 and recovering from another blowout with my mother. Too much going on here, he said. He tapped on his temple without looking up and turned to the sports section. My father was a recovered addict and had endured an adolescence far more troubled than my own. When he was 19, residing semi-permanently under the boardwalk in Asbury Park, he was caught selling methamphetamine to a police officer. He spent six weeks in jail before moving to a rehabilitation center in Camden County, where he became a guinea pig for a new psychotherapy treatment. He was made to wear a sign around his neck that read, I'm a people pleaser, and engaged in exercises in futility that would supposedly stimulate moral fiber. Every Saturday, he dug a hole in the yard behind the institution, and every Sunday, they made him fill it back up again. Any trouble I might be in seemed minor by comparison. He attempted to console my mother, convince her it was a normal phase, something most teenagers ache in and out of, but she refused to accept it. I had always done well in school, and this shift coincided all too conveniently with the time to start applying to colleges. She saw my malaise as a luxury they'd paid for. My parents had given me too much, and now I was full of self-pity. She doubled down, morphing into a towering obelisk that shadowed my every move. She needled me over my weight, the width of my eyeliner, the state of my breakouts, and my lack of commitment to the toners and exfoliants she'd ordered for me from QVC. Everything I wore was an argument. I wasn't allowed to shut my bedroom door. After school, when my friends would head to one another's houses for weekday sleepovers, I was whisked away to extracurriculars, then stuck in the woods, left to grumble alone in my room with the door left open. I called up Michelle on Zoom to ask her about her writing process and her musical influences, and of course to hear what she'd say to her younger self. Michelle, hello. Hello. Thank you for being here on Dear Young Rocker. Thank you for having me. So you just wrote a book, or you wrote a book a, a little while ago, but it's it's coming out. It's coming out Tomorrow, if you're listening to the episode today, April 21st, or it's already out if you're listening to it any other day. And it's called Crying in H-Mart, and I've been loving it. Thank you. Thank you so much for writing it. There's so many reasons I like it. First of all, it's well-written. It's compelling. It's an important story for so many reasons. For one reason, which really has to do with this podcast, is that there's not a whole lot of women rock musician memoirs in the world. There's a handful, but they're all sort of like super duper famous people kind of thing. And they're all very, some of them are very ghostwritery. They're just kind of about the music career. Some of them, like Carrie Brownstein's book is, is a little more writerly. And I, I really, really love that book. But I've always just sort of craved like more just like life stories from women who play music in the world, because sometimes it feels like the media doesn't know we exist. It's like rock star or you're a mom and a homemaker. There's there's so many women who just play in bands on the weekend like me or in, in some area of like touring on some level. And we need those stories. I'm so happy your story's out there. And 
the mother-daughter relationship as a, a fellow only child who's a daughter of a very a mother who's very you know into appearances and had put a lot of stress on me in that regard as a kid like I felt really seen and you expressed things in a way I still haven't been able to and I mean the insight where you're at of course you've had more reflection and you've been able to write about this a lot so you know you have that wisdom and it and it just felt good to me like I finally had that like sister I've always looked for who's like been through those moments because it's the kind of thing you don't really want to like talk to your friends about so much and you always kind of wish you had someone else with you so reading your book really did that for me and we're the same age we're like four months apart so similar like musical influences growing up and the food writing elements are incredible but this podcast is not about food so we probably won't talk about that but yeah great restraint in your writing too you know the worry as a memoirist I wrote Dear Young Rocker as a memoir a full-length book a full-length book originally and so I know like how hard it is to have restraint and it takes a lot of editing and you worry about sounding like you're complaining about your parents or whatever. And you don't even approach that line. You have, you know, beautiful restraint. Um, you never tell us how we should feel. You just kind of put us there. You paint the picture. So really well done. And I appreciate how much work it is reliving trauma, like reliving all these, these hard things and seeing your family as characters. It's its a crazy amount of work. So I'm so glad this book exists and that you were able to do it. Thank you. Yeah, you're so welcome. So my first question will be, what was the process for you of like deciding to go for a full-length book? How did you have like some reason you felt like this book had to be in the world? And like, what was that for you? Um, I think that it came in stages. Um, it started as an essay in 2016. Um, and I'd actually never written nonfiction before. I studied creative writing in college, but I had to only taken fiction courses and really enjoyed fiction and, and thought that I, I might write fiction someday. But um, yeah, I just never thought... I, I, I always felt that there would be like too much pretext in my life, largely because like I'm mixed race and like I didn't want to write these like you know, meandering ruminations on, like, identity, which I ended up doing anyway. But um, I wrote this essay in 2016 called Love, Loss, and Kimchi, and I was, like, working in advertising at the time. And I was at that point in my life when I was 25. My mom had just passed away, and, you know, I had been trying to make it as a musician, like, pretty much since I was 16. But I mean, really trying to make it in, like, my early, for, like, the entirety of my early 20s, probably. And, you know, like, there's that whole, mm, like, you know, everyone knows about, like, the struggle and that you have to, like, really uh, pay your dues in in this, in the world of, of music. And, and I was, like, really willing to do that for a really long time. And I slept on floors uh for many years and like played to no one and and you know would quit my you know like go on tour and get fired from my job and have to like find another job as a waitress and you know like after my mom passed away I was like you know what you gave it your all like it's not working out for you it's time to set it aside so I um got a job in advertising and like pretty quickly found that you know I was pretty miserable but like you know was not willing to like fully accept it but I felt very unfulfilled I would work all day I would work from like 
you know, eight to eight. And then I would leave work and just feel like I didn't do anything. And so I would either mix the record that I had been working on shortly after my mom passed away. Uh, and I also started writing this little nonfiction essay about this woman, Mangchi, who is this like Korean cooking vlogger. Um, and just it was I just thought it was a cute story. You know, after my mom passed away, I just found myself like cooking a lot of Korean food. And, um, you know, it was just really comforting for me to like remember her in this way. And like it was kind of like this like little Korean Julia and Julia where I was like using this like YouTube woman to like, you know, navigate my grief in this like very charming way. And so I wrote about that experience. And I submitted it to every uh, literary contest that didn't have an entry fee. And so, like, all of these food blogs and, like, no one wanted it. And then, like, nine months later, I found out I won Glamour Magazine's Essay of the Year. And I totally f forgot that I had even submitted to them because I had submitted so many different places. And, um, yeah, so that came out. And, you know, the editing process, like, brought it down to like a third of what it was and I in the process of writing it I had like so many more ideas and then when it came out I had a number of like agents uh, approach me about you know this looks like a book like do you, is that something that you're interested in so I feel like that was like the first time that I had this sort of like validation and encouragement to maybe like think about it so it, it kind of started there and then my band started taking off and um we went on tour in 2017 in asia for the first time and then we had like i i stayed in seoul for like six weeks and decided you know like let's just i'll just i'm just gonna start writing down ideas and mostly just like like fun memory like the thing that really enticed me about it was like i would love to like relive what was great about my childhood, you know, and like just outline what that would that could look like. And in my mind, it was like, I'd love to spend a lot of time like revisiting really fun and good stuff like from my childhood. Uh, and then talk about like this really intense six week, the these really intense six months that happened where I lived as a caretaker in Eugene, and my mom passed away. And then the kind of aftermath of, um, you know, how I sort of started using cooking as like a, a grieving tool or like a therapeutic vessel or something. Um, so that was kind of like the general outline. And so I was just kind of like throwing writing at the wall in this period. Um, and then I think in like 2018, my label actually, Dead Oceans, had this connection with Michael Agar at The New Yorker. And they were pitching something to help promote the record, like some interactive website or something. And Michael Agar was just like, I don't know anything about interactive websites, but if you want to send me some writing, like I'll read it. And so I had all of this writing I had done in Korea and I sent him what was the first chapter, which was Crying in H Mart. And surprisingly, he had very, there were like no edits and it was a really easy process and nothing really got cut. And then from that essay, it just kind of like exploded and I had a lot of like agents reach out to me and then it finally was like, all right, now this is like a real thing. And I have like bare bones, like outline and, uh, got an agent who helped me develop into a proposal, sold to Knopf. And then it was like, okay, now you have the means to like, you actually have to write this now. So that was sort of the very long way that it came together. <laughs> yeah. Books have a way of, especially memoirs have a way of, uh, being a pretty long story, long origin story, yeah. <laughs> because it's like, well, my whole life happened, right. and then eventually a book did. Um, but, you know, while we're talking about, like, process, 
I've, I feel like I have looked at my own childhood and adolescence. Like, I look at it so much differently than I used to before I wrote about it. And I feel like you were kind of hinting it, uh, about that in what you just said, where you said, like, oh, I wanted to think about the happy memories. And I felt like under the surface you were saying maybe, like, when I used to think back, I thought a little more negatively about things. So I think the power of memoir is rewriting your own story. So I wonder, like, if, you know, writing this book has been its own, like, healing sort of transformation for you. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that a lot of what I've, like, really discovered in this book was already kind of starting to happen just by the nature of, like, growing older. Like, I think that's a lot of... Um, mm -hmm. I think that happens to a lot of people in their, like, early to mid-20s, like, where they just start seeing their, their parents as, like, human beings uh, instead of just, like, their, these, like, what are supposed to be perfect, you know, caretakers and guardians for you. Um, I think I was starting to already realize that and then revisiting these memories, like, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't blame my mom for a while, like, for, for our, um, for all of our disagreements in my teenage years, like, uh, but I also looking back, like, I think I stopped blaming myself as much, um, more so. Mm. Like, I think I lived with a lot of guilt, especially after she passed away, that I had been this, like, kind of difficult teen. And, right. like, if anything, and especially, like, having some artistic, like, success now and writing this memoir, I don't, I don't know. You know, I think there was just a lot of, like, um, like, my mom just really didn't think that there was a world where this could happen. And so she was, like, trying to protect me from it. Mm-hmm. And now I'm in this position in my life where I'm like, well, you see, like, I, you know, I, what, like, I clearly knew, like, all along that I was, like, meant to do this, you know, and yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that, if anything, like, writing this book actually really helped me, like, forgive myself for a lot of the things that I, mm. I failed, I felt I failed at for a long time. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's, you know, on these episodes of this podcast, I usually help someone write a memoir and a mini memoir, like a 20-minute one. And that's usually kind of when I ask, what did you get out of it? They say, like, I've forgiven myself for so many things and I've accepted so many more things and seen, even if I was, like, a terror teenager, like, I understand what factors now are kind of, like, pushing me toward that and I can, like, forgive myself and kind of give myself a hug. And for me, it's kind of, like, my journey toward self-acceptance is, like, I had to accept, like, little baby me and then, like, middle school me and now I'm like kind of getting to like me now okay yes self-love okay we're getting closer so for me writing and you know self-acceptance was pretty intertwined and I've heard that from like a lot of other guests so I I also expected to hear that that from you and I kind of I felt that in your book but I I liked that it was it was subtle it was you know good writing you weren't you weren't saying like and now I accept myself so much more but I I could see it so, you know, on that topic, that makes me think of a very specific moment in the book where you're in high school and you're having lunch or dinner with your mom and you say that you want to start recording your music. You've, you've been playing for a little while. You finally kind of feel like yourself, like you know you want to be a musician. And you tell her, I want to start doing more of this music stuff. And it freaks her totally <laughs> out. She has like a panic attack and she like flees the restaurant and I don't want to say she kicks you out, but it's this implied, like, if you want to be that person, you want to be a rock star, honey, go do it by yourself. And you're 
semi-homeless, I guess, for a little while. You're, you're floating around on couches. And I think a lot of people might read that scene and be like, wow, that's just like totally abusive. Like her mom didn't, she just said, you know, what's in her heart, what she cares about. And instead of supporting her, she said like, basically, I don't want you to be that person. But for me reading that, having a mom who had said to me so many times, you don't need a band, you need a career, or you don't need a band, you need a husband and a house. That was the refrain I heard when I tried to talk to my mom about music. You know, I understand now, like, my mom was scared that I would end up living in a punk house forever. Or, you know, because she worked so hard, you know, she came from blue-collar, like, humble, you know, immigrant stock, and moving up in class was very important. And I think, you know, there's a similar thing with your mom, and you see that perspective from her of freaking out for that reason. But again, um, I'm just wondering what your interpretation would be if, like, someone came to you and was like, Michelle, like, I know you've been through a lot with your mom, but, like, that wasn't cool. Like, how do you feel about that now, you know? I mean, like, it's impossible to show, like, everything that led up to that moment, you know? And I feel like I, I tried my best. I mean, like, you can say, like, I was a pretty rotten teen, but you don't get, like, all of, you know, you don't get every moment that I, you know. So there was a lot of, like, tension and buildup that, like, brought us there, you know? Um, I think that she was probably, you know, I— I'm only going to be, like, defensive of my mom now. At the time, of course, I was like, this is abuse, you know? And, like, I'm, you know, like, homeless, like, teenager, and, like, I don't need you. But I had really brought myself to that point. At that point, I was also like, I want to be on my own. This is great, you know? And then I did that for a couple of weeks, and I was like, this sucks. <laughs> like, why? You know, like, after you sleep in the punk house for, like, two weeks and, like, have no money and, like, are hungover all the time and, like, miserable and no one's looking out for you, like, you're like, man, I am maybe walking away from a really – a lot of really good stuff here. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. I I understand. I think that she was, like, at her wits' ends and didn't even know – like had tried everything in the book to try to steer me in a certain type of direction and was like, all right, like, I don't know what else to do at this point, except for like, really show you what it's like if you want to like live on your own without your parents help. And, you know, I, 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 it accomplished me like definitely coming back with my tail between my, my legs a bit for sure. But, you know, I think a lot of like, there's some people that maybe like don't go through that in their teenage years, but I think that, you know, if I ever were to be a mom, like I, I, I think that you you just at one, some point, like, you just try everything, you know, and then you're like, okay, well, you know, there's this now. And it was a very much, like, last resort thing for her, I think, and, and we had just reached a breaking point that, that got us there. Yeah, so I'm sure it's part of the whole difficulty of taking lifetimes and reducing them to a bunch of sentences or a paragraph— and, and moments that always have so much under-the-surface stuff, like taken at face value if you, like, just wrote the headline of that, that article as, <laughs> that um, story as, like, a, a tabloid article. Mom kicks out teenager for wanting to play music, right? But when you're, you, you see the history and you understand that moms get fed up, you know? She was looking out for you, right? Yeah. yeah. Right, mm -hmm. in her way. But... I do want to start another podcast someday about mother-daughter relationships, and you're welcome to be part of that. 
great. But let me know. <laughs> but since this is about music and, you know, coming of age and teenager stuff. So like I said at the beginning, we're, we're like the same age. And I was so excited when you mentioned Karen O oh in your book because there's two other, at least two, maybe three other writers this season who mentioned Karen O oh, like changing their lives. What did you feel when you, you first saw Karen O? Oh? Yeah, um, I had two, like, immediate... Re I mean, like, this was, like, right around the time that I feel like I was, like, really forming my own musical taste. And a lot of it was rooted in, like, Pacific Northwest indie rock and bands like Elliot Smith and Modest Mouse and Built to Spill and, and those types of... And Mount Erie and K Records bands. Um, and then, you know, around this time, like, I was, like, getting to be friends with more musicians and, and people who were big music fans and I had uh, this friend who had a DVD of uh, the Yeah Yeah Yeahs playing uh, live at the Fillmore and like just seeing this woman like bound across the stage uh, to like start Y Control and then like fake choking herself with the XLR cable and deep throating a microphone and spitting water everywhere and I just I'd never seen anything I mean I'd never seen that level of showmanship in like a man uh, so it was just like you know, so I just immediately was like, I want to do that. Like, how do I do that? And uh, then I had this other, you know, I, I found out that she was half Korean and it just felt like an unreal connection. You know, like it felt like, you know, that's that's me. Like, I need to know her. And then I had this other like kind of like scarcity like mentality, which I talk about in the book, which is like, you know, oh, if there's already like one Asian woman that's doing this, like that's that like there's no more room for me now like is is that it like have I missed my chance like she's taken that spot and in retrospect now it's like such a ridiculous sentiment because like how many like white dudes have seen like the strokes and been like oh that's it that's it for me <laughs> like I, I guess there's no more room um but yeah I definitely had those those like two uh very conflicting thoughts and like you know I'm, I mean I still I still love the AES. I think that like not only just like her being a woman in a band and her being half Korean and being able to relate to all those things in such a deep level, like I think her her, her career is like so fun. I mean, they are are legitimately like just one of the coolest, like most stylish rock band. And I don't mean like stylish like in terms of like fashion, but I mean I just think that they have like right. such a unique like you know a yeah 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 song, and you know that it has mm -hmm. like this grit and like real like you know punk spirit uh that mm -hmm. that just like wakes something up inside of you just it, it sounds cool like <laughs> that's like what rock music yeah. sounds like it sounds cool and you couldn't see like three cooler people on a stage like uh making i don't know just like totally incomparable music and on top of that like having this breath to be able to like make you know, also these, like, really, like, heart-wrenching ballads. Um, and I just think that, like, her scope, like, just, like, her ability to, like, be the most, like, in-your-face, like, sh like incredible, um, have this incredible showmanship and be, like, this the coolest punk, like, is also able to, like, mm -hmm. make you just, like, fall apart with her ballads. And she mm -hmm. has, like, such a playful spirit and such an amazing creative imagination. Like, I, I think her career is, like, such a model for, like, um, what I want to do, certainly. So were there other, um, I guess, rock or music role models for you at that time? Like, who was who was your, like, biggest obsession around, like, age 15, 16? 
Um, I mean, T- Karen O was definitely up there. I loved, um, I also loved Metric and Emily Haynes' project. Oh, like, um, yeah. I thought Metric was another one of those bands that were so cool. And I loved Emily Haynes' like solo album and just thought, you know, I think she's like a true, I felt she was a like, true literary artist, you know. Uh, I loved Rilo Kiley and um, Jenny Lewis. Uh, she was like such a huge, like, you know, just like, uh, yeah, indie role model. Um, and I loved, uh, I just loved indie rock, you know? I loved, I loved like dynamic rock music um, with like lyrics that felt like they had real depth. That was like my bag. And do you remember the absolute first ever song you wrote? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It was this really, I had this really horrible, like folky acoustic project, and I wrote this song called BFF. That was just so cutesy and terrible. Another, like, uh, during this time, like, the anti-folk movement was, like, really a big thing. And so, like, there were artists like Kimia Dawson and, like, I don't know how Joanna Newsom got, like, lumped into this. But I I also loved Joanna Newsom. And Mm. at the time, I was, like, I I just never felt very confident in my voice, my singing voice. I never did, like, choir or anything like that. And so um, I felt, like, with musicians like Kimia Dawson, who had this kind of, like, uh, or any of those K Records bands, like they had this kind of like talking style, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and there was, it was this kind of like cutesy, very personal talking style. And then on top of that, there was like Joanne Newsom who had this like really weird, very high voice. So I was doing this thing where I was like kind of combining those two things and I was like, <laughs> I don't have a normal singing voice. I will just like sing really high and kind of talk, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that's what I, I started doing. And then, you know, I was like 16 years old. It was like before I had any kind of like romantic relationship in my life. So I I wrote about my best friend. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> basically like dates I would go on with my best friend and how much I loved hanging out with my best friend that was like mm-hmm. the first song that I GCD you know it's all Aww. you needed yep I love that um okay so yeah in that same passage where you you talk about Karen O you say I didn't personally know any other girls who played music I didn't know there were others like me struggling with the same feelings so, like, those two sentences could be, like, the mission statement of Dear Young Rocker. Like, <laughs> we're here we're here for those kids who are in that place now. We're like, are there others like me? Um, and we're also here for people who felt that way 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago who still need to feel like there are others like them and kind of go back in time and hopefully get the message across. So, in that... In that spirit, um, I'd like to sort of end our interview with having you do like a mini on the spot Dear Young Rocker letter. So what I'll have you do is kind of like really just picture little Michelle (laughs) sitting right in front of you and she sees you walk in and I don't know if you are exactly the same person or maybe to her you look like an older sister or something like that. And she's like, what? what should I know about life? Like, am I going to mess it up? You know, is anything good going to happen? Is anything bad going to happen? Am I alone in this? Am I weird? Am I messed up? All the general questions in the head of a young person. So if you want to start, um, you can say, dear young rocker, or dear young Michelle, whatever feels right. And just give her like, 
the spiel of, of what's to come and give her some support. Whatever you wish someone had told you when you were that age. Dear Young Rocker, the people around you that are peaking in middle school and high school are going to end up being the most uncool people as adults. It is absolutely the worst thing to peak at middle school and high school. And I know that it seems like all you want to do right now and the most enticing thing is to like be like these these young kids who are peaking now, but just know that every single person that I have ever known to have peaked in high school and middle school are like total losers now and are completely miserable and have no direction with their lives. Um, and it's just the worst thing. Uh, the fact that you are like a total loser right now is actually really cool and it's going to fuel a lot of really great art uh, that everyone is going to be able to relate to when you're much older. So... Hold on to, like, what makes you a total weirdo now and appreciate that that's going to influence, like, a lot of really great art um, in the future. And that it's, like, totally okay to be super sensitive and really hormonal and to, like, write that shit down. Because, like, when you grow older, you're going to really miss uh, just, like, the your ability to feel this much right now. It's, like... It's not always going to be like this. And, like, this is where, like, a lot of really great stuff happens. And, yeah, I think that as you get older, um, you'll encounter a lot of rejection and a lot of failure. Uh, but ultimately, you'll learn a lot, a lot about those experiences. And just because you get turned down for something, it doesn't mean that it's bad. It just means that it's not—it hasn't hit the right hands yet or it's not quite the right time. And so don't get down on yourself um, if it doesn't if it doesn't work out for you right away. It doesn't mean that you're not like making great stuff. It just means like it hasn't made its way in, into the right hands yet. Um, and yeah, I think that that's that's the that's the main thing for me. There, there's a lot of really great stuff to come, and I definitely like was a huge nerd in it. My prospects seemed pretty low, and I I turned out pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> Bravo. That was great. Oh, I think that that would uh I think she'd she'd probably be confused, maybe not <laughs> want to believe the good parts, but she needs she needs to hear it and I think she heard it. Yeah. Um yeah. like I truly believe like this is the most goofy spiritual thing I believe is that when you talk to your past or future self, you actually do hear it. It's I think there's some kind of quantum physics. I don't know. That's my most woo-woo thing. So I, I think what you just did actually made a difference. And you might not be here if, now if you hadn't done it. Cool. That's my crazy cool, thought. Cool. But, or at least you paid it forward and maybe someone heard it who needed to hear it. Please do yourself a favor and pick up a copy of Crying in H-Mart, and for gosh sake, check out Michelle's music if you haven't yet. Her new gorgeous album, Jubilee, is coming out on June 4th via Dead Oceans, and you can hear some of those songs on her recent Jimmy Fallon performance. Next time on Dear Young Rocker. We'll hear about a pretty difficult, but insightful freshman year of high school. Turns out, Doc Martens can change a lot. 
excerpted courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio from Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zahner, read by the author. Dear Young Rocker comes to you from Double Elvis and iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by Jake Brennan of Disgraceland. It was created and is produced, written, and hosted by me, Chelsea Erson. I also created the theme song. Colin Fleming helps with sound design and mixing, and Auto Clamor provides editing and production assistance. If you enjoy this podcast, please, please let me know by sending in a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also hang out with me virtually by following at Dear Young Rocker on Instagram. Please do not hesitate to send me a message there and also follow Double Elvis for news about all of our new cool music podcasts. And if you'd like some snazzy DYR buttons or a t-shirt, go to doubleelvis.com shop. As always, the best thing you could ever do for this show is to share it with someone who you think would like it or just everyone you've ever met. Thanks, rockers. Dear Young Rocker is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Productions. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.